Lock Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm on Zoom with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Joining us for this episode, all the way from New York City, is the fabulous Mary Harron. Hi, Mary. Hi there. How are you? <laughs> Many of you listening out there will know Mary's name from cult movies like American Psycho and I Shot Andy Warhol. But not all of you will know the part that Mary played in the story of New York's punk scene. So this week, 45 years after television released the seminal Little Johnny Jewel, we thought we'd ask you, Mary, all about CBGB, Punk Magazine, and that incredible downtown New York scene from the mid-70s. Tell us, you know, how you came into music in the first place. It was a complete accident. I... I never intended to be a music writer. It was, um, I wanted to be a writer at that point, but it was, it was all like a series of accidents. I had, after college, I went back to, I'm Canadian, but I'd spent my teenage years in London, went to, to university. And I went back to, to Canada for a while. And I was, to, in Toronto, it was very clean and sort of nice. And I was really bored and I wanted, you know, something to have mystery and adventure, I think. And so I went one weekend, to, took the train down to New York to see my friend Michael Zilka. Later, how did very you, know, how, you knew Michael from Oxford, right? From Oxford, yes. Yeah, I, I realize you just skirted over the fact that you went to Oxford. Yeah. <laughs> and dated Tony Blair, no less. I was oh, going to yes, say, is yes, it all Tony briefly. Blair's fault? Uh, and one, yeah. of, um, <laughs> one of my great regrets at Oxford is that... Tony several times asked me to come see his band. This is this is when we were just friends, you know, in our first or second year. Kids saying, "Come and see my band." This is ugly and rumors, I was like, yeah. right? This is ugly what? rumors. Yes, yes, ugly rumors. And I don't know. I was busy. I just never went. And I could have been one of the very few people who saw his band. <laughs> so great to regret there. There's something really great here because my father was the man who recruited Tony Blair to the Labour Party. Ah. So, 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 and so he used to come around to my parents' place quite a lot and proved to be an absolutely useless branch secretary. But so we, <laughs> so we, we have Tony Blair in common. <laughs> yes, I remember him telling me he was getting interested in politics, and I thought, oh, that's nice. You know. <laughs> <laughs> a nice hobby. Um, yeah. Yeah, a nice hobby. But anyway, so I, after Oxford, I went to back to Canada for a bit and. I don't know. I didn't. It, I wanted to be a writer. I had this idea. Maybe I'd go to. I wanted to go to South America and you know, pursuit of adventure. So I went down to New York for Michael Zilka's twenty-first birthday party. And New York, I thought was. And I'd I'd lived in New York actually as a child, some of my childhood. But in nineteen seventy-five, it seemed like the most fantastic place in the world. It was so exciting. And all the things that people didn't like about it were like, yes, yeah, yeah. filthy subways, graffiti. Oh, it's fantastic. And, and I, just a bit dangerous. And I just thought it was so wonderful. I had this crazy, I remember getting very drunk and being up all night with different people in Michael's party going from place to place. And I went back to Toronto. And two weeks later, I put all my stuff in, in, in big black garbage bags and got on a train and moved to New York with no money, particularly. And in those days, you could get, a, there were, in the Village Voice, there were ads for room and board. So I was living in the Martha Washington Hotel for Single Women, which was $35 a week. And I, so I, I went, moved in there for a month. And I went and interviewed for these different jobs. And I chose the weirdest one, which was a supposed film commune called Total Impact, which was on the 
in the East Village on 14th Street and 2nd Avenue, then considered a hellhole. Now it's unaffordable. Like, yeah. <laughs> French, you know, big box stores. And but then it was pretty it was kind of edgy and total impact had taken over two abandoned buildings on the corner of, of 2nd Avenue and 14th Street. And they were supposed to be making what sounded to me like an absolutely terrible film called Getting Together about, I don't know, about communes and all kinds of stuff. And anyway, I ended up running the kitchen because I didn't really want anything to do with the film. And I like to cook. So I was running their kitchen, trying to decide what I was going to do. And one day, a kid came in, 19 years old, named Eddie McNeil, Legs McNeil. And he had done some work for these guys on some other film. And he said to me, we started chatting. And he said, you know, these people are all crazy here. And I said, yeah, I've, I've clocked that. And what do, you, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a writer. And he said, well, you should meet my friend. He's starting a magazine. And it's called Punk. And I thought that was so, because, you know, this was before Punk, right? So Punk was just very cheeky. Like a punk was just like a bratty kid, you know? I thought that, because I thought it was going to be like some literary, you know, partisan review. No, punk. So that, that was great. I said, sure, I'll meet your friend. And one night they came around when I was mopping the kitchen floor after serving dinner to the film commune. And they said, we're going to go to CGB's. And I was wearing, legs always tells me, I was wearing a long flowered dress. You know, it was 1975. And they said, you cannot wear that to see the Jeepers. Go change. So I changed. And we went into down what, to the East. Mary? What did you change what? in? What did you change into? Oh, Su- just suitably yeah, punky and I did oh. jeans and something, no. you know. And we went to CBGB's to see the Ramones. And when we got in there, we met at the door, Roberta Bailey, very important person, photographer, key, key. And she was really nice to us. And she let us in for free, which was huge. And I think one of the reasons why they invited me on is I had a tape recorder. And so, well, you've done interviews, you know, maybe you can help us do an interview. We got in there, we're supposed to see the Ramones, which we did, which was amazing. And like, I'd never seen anything like it. But also when we arrived, they said, Lou Reed is here. And I did not know very much about music, but I did know the Velvet Underground. I really liked them. And so I was like super excited about this. Anyway, we sat down and, the, you know, this blast of sound, you know, the Ramones. I mean, you know, 75, this blast of sound, incredibly loud. And, and it was just, and the set was over in like 15 minutes. I think maybe they had a fight on stage. I think Leg said they did. <laughs> I hope so. Um, you know, probably, you know, Johnny <laughs> Glowering and, you know. It was just like, whoa, this was just almost like an art event. It was so crazy and intense, but also real because you were in the you were in the Bowery and things were very real. And then afterwards, Legs and John decided they would just ask Lou Reed if they could interview him. Yes. And so I was, well, you know, very in awe, but they were just like brazen and very bratty and went and did that. And so at some point that interview happened, that interview started in the club and then Lou Reed kind of invited us to tag along to a, to a restaurant after. But in the meantime, they said, oh, we're busy with Lou, so can you go interview the Ramones? So I did, like, my first. And there I met Danny Fields. Ah. And I did this sort of crazy little interview. And I knew so little. I mean, I knew certain things in music, but there, I didn't know any of, like, a lot of the cool part from I knew the I knew about Warhol because I was obsessed with Warhol. And I knew about... The Velvet Underground, but I didn't really know anything else. And so when I met Danny and I said, oh, you know, so you're managed. Who else did you used to manage? And he said, Iggy and the Stooges. And I didn't hear right. And I thought, 
I had never heard of them. I saw Iggy and the Sturgeons. Oh, fish. <laughs> that, that didn't find its way into print, presumably. I know, no, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm uh, happy to admit it. <laughs> it's like, okay. And I think the fact is I, I just asked them all kinds of dumb things, which was in a way the punk magazine style. And, and, and John Holmstrom had a really great philosophy about what we were doing, which is that we don't know, you know, we are, you know, in the very first issue of Punk Magazine, he had to think about the definition of, of punk, which is a, an amateur and inexperienced hand, you know, an ignorant person. So it's like, yeah, that's what we are. We don't know anything and we're not pretending to. So the fact that I, I wasn't asking like complicated, you know, musical questions, it was more really, I don't know, just simple things. Why do you do this? Why do you do that? And I, I, I recorded this interview and then we went on this crazy late night thing with Lou Reed where he was actually quite mean to us. Well, <laughs> Lou Reed made it's Lou. surely some mistake. <laughs> yes. And in fact, at other events, I, I realized I've had this later when I was like a grown up and working for the BBC, I went and did a film about Lou Reed and he was incredibly mean to us then and then relaxed after he terrorized everyone, it was completely charming. So anyway, he, he kind of yelled at legs, and I was quite intimate. And I talked, he was with Rachel, if you remember, who was sure, the first transgender sure. person I'd ever met. Now, that was kind of a gog, really, at this world that I had. Um, oh, and I remember we went to this club and sort of watched him eat, I think. <laughs> and at the end, it was quite a, a dreamlike and strange experience. And I thought, oh, he was mean to us, he hated us. And we were standing out in the street afterwards, and John Holmstrom was jumping up and down, saying, we have a magazine, we have a magazine. I was like, but he hated us and didn't really want to talk to us. So anyway, fast forward a few weeks, I'm still in my weird little uh, hotel, and I wrote out my interview. And I think sort of instinctively, I just wrote it down a bit like comedy, like a bit like very plain like this is what it is this is what they were saying they were they were funny obviously and I just wrote a bit like I'm this outsider I wandered in and I walked across the city what late one night all the way across the city to 10th Avenue to where the punk what we call the punk dump which was this little office that they had at the very edge of the of the you know highway and John was up and he showed me what he was working on and it was cartoon boards. And I realized that he had taken this interview with Lou Reed and everything embarrassing and difficult about it. And he turned it into a comic book. And it was so brilliant. And it was so funny. And it's like, I, you know, ah, oh, I, and I, I was very nervous about this piece. Like, oh, this is terrible. And he read it and like, this is great. So it's like, oh, I guess somehow we're in sync, you know? And it, I went back to Toronto for Christmas and in January it came out and I was still, I was started going to CBGB's because that point I, I got an apartment on St. Mark's place and I was lonely. I didn't know a lot of people. So I would just go to CBGB's and, and I remember the second time I went, I met Roberta Bailey was always friendly to me, would let me in for free. And I met legs was there one night and he introduced me to Richard Hell. And he showed me, he said, oh, you, should, uh, you know, show Mary what you've written. He'd just written an article for, you know, Hit Parade or something about the Ramones. And this guy, Richard, who I'd never met, showed me this piece and I read it. And I thought, oh, my God, 
everyone here is a genius. <laughs> like, this is so gr- smart and so great. And I really felt like that, that compared, having come from Oxford, where everyone thought they were geniuses. And I was in this little club, and these people seemed so much smarter and more interesting in a way than the people I, you know, and, and the experience really wiped out my college experience. It was so intense and, and life-changing yeah. for me. And I think I've never got over it. It's fine. I think anybody involved, you just sort of never got out, get over it because I think it was, like, you know, being involved in something sort of bigger than yourself, which is what you, and it, and I think it had a lot of things. It had a family feel. It was very small. All you had to do to be part of it was turn up. You didn't have to look cool, which in all the other rock things I was involved in was so important, especially in London, but you didn't have to, you know, people watch all kinds of stuff. It didn't matter. You were just all fans of this. And so in that way, it wasn't intimidating. It was actually a weirdly friendly, like, a you know, as, as Lester Bangs once said, you walk in and you think some of these people are so scary, you realize that everyone's just little lost lambs sheltering against the storm. <laughs> so so it, yeah. it really changed my life, not to go on and on with monologue, but I think the other thing that happened was that I had just come out of this very high art education and they turned my ideas about what, I remember we were doing one interview, Holmes, John Holmstrom and I, and someone was, was talking about that there's no good or bad. And I said, well, I don't know. Cause I, I, I knew all these muso boys at Oxford, you know, I worked on the student magazine and they were all writing long things about the, the grateful dead who, you know, talking about the whatever difference between one track or another and i would say well yeah but aren't the the grateful dead better than the monkeys and and john was like oh mary don't embarrass us <laughs> and i realized that actually i kind of like the monkeys just as much as i like the grateful dead or probably more <laughs> and 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 i realized that hierarchies I, I, cultural hierarchies you know that there was a, there was a point to it about what is good what is bad you know and i just loved having all my ideas taken apart. And I like the idea that I, I knew so many different, in back then, you know, so many different kinds of people all in one little, I don't know, it was amazing, really. That's fascinating to to hear. Did you know Mark Ellen, Tony Blair's friend, Mark Ellen? I Oxford? didn't, I didn't know him at okay. Oxford. I knew no, him one, later in, 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 in Melody Maker. Yeah. But listen to kind of, you know, we, the first of the pieces is that Ramones piece from the first issue. Of yeah. punk, which is a, it is a delight to read after all this time, and it's so nice to hear you say there was a friendly scene. I think not speaking for both Mark and myself, but we didn't get punk magazine. I didn't see punk magazine till till some years later. I don't think it was possible to get it in London. So mm. our view of what was happening in New York at that time was probably came through the enemy. There was a long piece in 75 by Charles Shaw Murray about the kind of post-doll scene and these new bands. And I don't know about you, Mark, but I, I read this because I was already obsessed by New York. I read this piece in a state of fascination, but I think I just thought it was, it was just some ultra cool kind of fad or scene that was going to just come and go. Um, I, I mean, and rather than change the, the course of popular music. I, I, I probably didn't even read that piece. Uh, none of it registered. It's really the release of Horses was the first sort of indication that something was kind of yes. was brewing, you know. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, what is amazing is just how different all these groups were. You know, we, you, you think of this, this monolithic term punk. But every single... Well, they weren't punk bands, um, not by our definition of them. They weren't... Re- no, no, I mean, no, I think the, the Ramones, obviously, in a yeah. sense, were, were a distillation of, of a punk aesthetic. But television really were not a punk. No, no Talking Heads weren't a punk band. Talking Heads weren't a punk Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, those, those are probably... Those are the three big names plus Patty, obviously, that we all come back to. Yeah. I think what I was looking for and why I loved it so much was I was looking for Bohemia... Yes. I was looking for, you know, New York in the 50s. You know, I was looking for Beaton. I was looking for Paris in the 20s. You know, the idea of coffee houses or artists and garrets. And, and I felt like, I realized, I felt, oh, I found it, but it's like rock and roll. And it just happened to be rock and roll. But it was like, it was very much kind of bohemian artists. And, you know, Patty was a poet. Richard started as a poet. There was, and and Tom Miller changed his name to Tom Verlaine. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it was very easy to be. It didn't have, you could be middle class. It didn't matter. You know, in a way, I think English punk was much more political. And I think, obviously, much more, in many ways, much more exciting to people. But I, I, it was, with New York punk, it was very easy to find a place there. You didn't have to feel like, oh, I'm. I'm from this or that background. Doesn't, I'm not a poser. You know, I'm not a, you know, the punk, English punk was, you don't be a middle-class poser, which I yeah. certainly would have yeah. been. But I, I found it very easy. And it's funny, and it had something that I, I've always loved, which is it was very high low. I used to joke that if you were talking about a movie, it had to be like, you know, Faster Pussycats, Kill Kill, or or you know, early Goddard, you know what I mean? Like people were very into like... <laughs> nothing in <pop>. between. <laughs> yeah, nothing in between. No. No. I wanted to ask you briefly about Michael Zilker because the third of the pieces that we're featuring is this piece you wrote for The Guardian when you moved back to, mm. to England. And it was a piece about Z Records. And I fished out when I went into the office the other day. I, I came home with, with issue number two of Punk, yes, which, yes. of course, includes this, this really fabulous piece on Talking Heads that you and Michael yeah. wrote together. I was astonished to see Michael's name there. I mean, I knew Michael a little bit in the 80s, mm, yeah. and I hadn't even registered or remembered that he was a punk contributor. So here are these two aesthetes who went to Oxford who are, are all yeah. writing, writing about, about punk bands on the Lower East Side. Well, what was funny was Michael, who was the person who I'd gone to see that was how I rediscovered New York, yeah. he yeah. discovered CBG was completely independently of me. Our, our paths there were completely, and I didn't see him for a little while after I moved to you. And then it turned out that we were both, you know, getting obsessed with this same scene. And when I, when I had to write about, they asked me to write about Talking Heads, I did the very first Talking Heads interview, actually. And I felt like I needed to, because I didn't, I'm not that musical and I didn't, couldn't write technically about music. I thought, oh, I better talk to, I better get someone else to write this with me, which in, actually John Holmstrom thought was a mistake. He said, you should just have written a simple interview like you do the other ones. And after that, I never wrote about the technical thing of music at all. But Michael was very, very, and I love talking heads too. And those were uh, among the musicians, I guess my best friends, you know, I got on very well with Chris and Tina, you know. And then I was very good friends with Jay Doherty of the Patti Smith. You know, okay. so there's certain musicians yeah. I was very close to. Yeah, yeah. close to. But I, I did this interview in their loft when they were still sharing a loft with David Byrne. 
And it was really, it was really great. They were so sweet and they had never been interviewed before. It's like, oh, it's our first interview. And they were playing Roxy music, Love is the Drug and stuff. I remember that. Yes. Big love. Catch that buzz. Love is the drug I'm thinking of. But anyway, so I went with Michael and, and we wrote that uh, together. But then later, and Michael, well, I have to say something about Michael, even at college, and we're still friends now, we're still very good friends, is he had the best taste of anyone I know and really, really far-seeing. And there's two people whose taste really, in music, really admired and, and inspired me, and that was Michael Zilka and Lester Bangs. And the thing that they had in common is that they had no categories or snobbery like they really just listened like Michael did a fantastic compilation about 10 years ago that he sent to his friends of like the first 10 years of the 21st century and the songs he liked and it's like it'll be you know something it's not about cool at all he just he would like something very pop he'd like Britney Spears he'd like this he'd like something avant-garde and he would just listen to what the song was and I found that so like I always like, well, what would Michael say or what would Lester say? Yeah. You know? I mean, it's interesting that Barney and I both love a lot of the records that came out on the Z label. You know, I mean, yeah. the, 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 it's a shame that the label didn't last longer. I mean, you know, but, but just fantastic number of really, really interesting and good records came out. I mean, is it, did, did Michael just sort of at a certain point think, you know what, I could develop this record label and stick with that or I could go into the oil business? I think, I think, I think honestly, I think that I think that I think that Island Records kind of pulled the plug on them. Right. I think it was Chris Black. But no, I think I think it was heartbreaking for him. Okay. Okay. I think it was heartbreaking, and he had put so much into it, and and I think he really cared. And he did an amazing thing last year. He gave all his artists their their copyrights back. Oh, that's very cool. That's very now, who does that Nobody. in the history in the history of music? Nobody, no, yeah. he's a true, like, uh, true fan and a true kind of not just not an entrepreneur so much as like someone who just really cared about this stuff. And I thought the other thing about Michael is he's doing books now, and he had the visuals were fantastic on Z. And I think they influenced the whole idea of factory records a lot. Sure, actually, sure. you yeah. know, having a yeah. sort of curated overall look and a house style and a how i mean you know i guess blue note did that too but but z records really did a whole overall and i was very close to christina michael's wife yes at the, time. the late the late christina the late which is i was very I know, very, you know, de- very devastated by that and, and and we were very close friends and i had this kind of uptown world where i'd go and hang out with christina in the upper east side <laughs> and then i'd have a downtown <laughs> world you know and would you sing is that all there is together yes, over- yeah. <laughs> Over a exactly. glass of sherry. sherry. Yes. Michael, over that period, the thing that he did first was he started a little record label with John Cale. Yes. Yes. And I was obsessed with John Cale. I used to go to hear him 
every night he played at CBTVs. I just loved him. And, and Michael Zilk was the f- first person who told me, like, you have to come see John Cale solo. And I remember talking to me very, even back at Oxford, about this concert. He'd seen some crazy concert where John Cale had a doll or a mannequin. Yeah, legendary stuff. And I loved his his solo work. And so Michael asked me to come and meet with him. And I knew John a bit. I was, wrote a piece about him and all that. And asked me to help, I think, with some of the kind of press release for their there, it was called. I think I gave them the title actually. because cheap and nasty records. <laughs> you know, John said he wanted to be cheap, look cheap and nasty. Cheap and nasty. And and then later, you know, John Cale wrote the score for my first two movies. Of course, of course, that's absolutely right. So there's a real continuum here, isn't there? I mean, mentioning John Cale makes me want to briefly just talk about this enormous Warhol piece that you wrote because mm. because the backdrop to everything we're talking about in a way is is Andy Warhol is the factory, isn't it? I mean, the, mm. the, the Warhol, the Velvet, John Cale's involvement with Patti Smith. There's such a sort of thread through all of this. This very, very long piece that you wrote for Melody Maker. I mean, I, remem- I remember reading it at the time because I think it was around time I wrote probably the first things I ever wrote for Richard Williams at, at Melody Maker. And I remember this, this piece, pop art slash art pop, and I I reread it in, in in anticipation of of this episode. It's it's a really terrific piece, and of, of course you then your first film was was I shot Andy Warhol. So you said earlier you were already really fascinated by Warhol. Was that a big part of? I always think you know Warhol has so much to do with with the way New York has is has sort of evolved in in pop culture. What was your interest in in Warhol? Where well, I was from? very into art when I was a kid. And it, my original idea was I was going to go to art school, okay. you know. So I was probably more into art than, you know, music. And I remember when I was like 10 or 11, my best friend and I, her mom was an art critic, and we did a, we did a project for school about pop art and op art, you know. <laughs> that was my first thing. And then later, when I was about 15, there was a magazine called I that was like a kind of hip, the East Village Eye? No, it was called Eye. It was like oh, it was just okay. like an attempt to do a sort of cool. It lasted like three issues, but someone gave me a copy, and they had a piece about Warhol's factory. And I read, look at these photographs, and I was completely fascinated by them, enthralled by them. And so later, when we were at Oxford, and I was working on the ISIS, the student magazine, we did a we did an issue on the sixties. And I said, I'll, and I, I don't know whose idea, but I, I wanted to do one on Warhol. And I wrote a rather sort of disapproving and snooty piece that was sort of belying my real obsession with it. Because at that point, Warhol was considered like a bad person because of Edie Sedgwick and all that. But I spent one summer going to Warhol's movies. They had a retrospective at the Electric Cinema. So, you know, I was reading books about Warhol and I read, uh, I went to all these movies. It had a big effect. And later, when I made my first movie, I went and saw all those movies again. So I was, I was very affected by that, but I was just really fascinated. And I think the same way I was fascinated. And then I had this big obsession with the Velvet Underground. And part of that was that they were lost. You know, it was mysterious. They'd broken up and no one had really written their story. And I wrote the, the history of the, eventually the history of the Velvet Underground yes. for Enemy. But I, I, I was in Texas working on something. This is after I, I'd actually moved back to London. Someone helped me track down Sterling Morrison, and I had like a series of interviews with Sterling, and and then eventually managed to 
to meet all the the members of Velvet Underground. Well, I'd already met Lou. He wouldn't be interviewed for this piece, but you know, John Cale and Mo Tucker, and it was very and uh, people involved, um, Walter De Maria, people who worked with them in the early days, and eventually worked up these kind of epic piece. But I was absolutely obsessed with everything to do with with the factory, and so when Richard let me write this piece. And I can't remember whether he suggested, maybe he suggested it actually, or I did. I can't remember. Well, he was very hip to the Velvets himself, wasn't he? I mean, very. I think he Mark, he reviewed Velvet Underground and Nico for his the, the local paper in Nottingham. As he yes, yes. Nottingham was not ready for the Velvet Underground. No. And for a few months, actually, after leaving New York, I went and lived in Paris for, for a few months and taught English or whatever. And I, I met Nico and spent an evening with her oh, to wow. interview her when wow. she was extremely, in extremely bad shape, actually. Yeah. But it was it was that thing about lost, sort of lost, you know, lost beauty, lost, lost stars. And so for the Melody Maker piece about Warhol, it was a chance to go and interview every and they were willing to be interviewed. You know, all these people, Viva or, you know, Jared Malango, everybody in the factory just to yeah, try Alan and put together. Yeah, spoke to, didn't you? Yeah. And, of course, yeah. Warhol himself. I mean, you, you described this hilarious, so I suppose typically archetypally Warhol-esque interview where all he says is everything is great. Oh, it's great. It's great. I love it. Oh, they're great. And then, oh, and then, and the other and then thing you wanted was, why don't you get Bridget to do the interview? You know, yeah, yeah. you managed to kind of get someone else to do his interview. I had met him once before at Michael Zilka's birthday party in, in sort of 1976. <laughs> it was a little dinner party. It's interesting. When we talk about Tom Verlaine later, one of the clips from the audio interview we're going to run is him talking about Warhol and how nice he was. And he says that so many of the artists were really snotty, were very arrogant, were obsessed with their careers and so on and so forth. And he said that you know, Warhol was just a really very nice man. Yeah, which is and just... it's funny. In a way, that's, that's true. I mean, when I met him, he's, there was something very vulnerable and charming mm-hmm. about him. I mean, it's interesting because he was a very complicated man. And an unhappy man in a lot of ways. But there was there was a vulnerability and a sort of sweet quality to him. And then I think that, again, as with punk, there was something similar in the attitude, which was sort of acceptance. I think this was a big thing. One of the things that really, really struck me about punk was when I first, because we were at the sort of fag end of the hippie era. There seemed to be nothing really interesting or exciting was going to come out. It was just sort of going to be hip capitalism till it sort of, till the ashes burned out, you know? So there was nothing new. And I remember thinking like, oh, I'm in this kind of dead time. And then discovering CBGBs and then listening to Richard Hell's song, Blank Generation. Like, oh, just the doors blew open because it was like, I belong to the blank generation. I can take it or leave it alone. I belong to the blank generation. It's like, yeah, that's what we are. Yeah. You can, we don't have anything new, but we are. We can, we, can, we can take this. We can just, like, that's our identity with the blank generation. And, and, and that's exciting. And being bored is exciting. You know, so I think Julie Burchill said this. Like, being bored, being bored exciting. was exciting. You've summed yeah. up punk rock in one, in one <laughs> yeah. so zen-like think, statement there. It's great. Yeah. I found the yeah. pop art, art pop piece really interesting to read because you were saying earlier how at the time you were writing for the ISIS in Oxford, that Warhol was kind of persona non grata. But now we've reached a point where 
Warhol is everywhere all the time. I mean, I can't count the number of exhibitions I've been in London at the Tate, you know, about right. pop art and Warhol always features is always overrepresented in all of that. But so it's we've we've really reached sort of Warhol saturation now. So it's interesting to go back and read your piece on that. And what I found particularly interesting, the note that you conclude on is like this idea of the absence of morality about how it enables you not to be self-righteous, but it also means that you're never sincere or concerned about anything. And I think mm-hmm. that's something that I've always been a little bit uncomfortable with, with that whole scene is like that distance. But then to get the perspective of how actually it was a friendly scene to be part of is, is a kind of strange contradiction to me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the Warhol scene itself could be friendly and could be very unfriendly, you know, mm. because that was more. I think Warhol. I think the Warhol scene in the '60s, before Valerie shot him, was more like the original CBGBs, where it allowed all kinds of outcasts and misfits in. And then later, the factory, the one that I was able to visit, was much more high style and snooty. Mm. And in a way, what happened to? I felt a little more alienated from you know, rock culture in, in New York when they started having the velvet rope, you know, and it started becoming a bit more exclusive. And I really missed the kind of free for all, you know. But one thing I would say about Warhol was that he, which is also what Punk did, was it was sort of say say yes to the modern world. Do you know what I mean? Like this is the world we live in and this we're going to celebrate it and make, make stuff yes, with it. Yes. In that Warhol piece, funnily enough, he does talk about talking heads and mm-hmm. talks very approvingly about them and compares mm-hmm. them to the Velvet Underground and mm-hmm. likes the fact that, that, that talking heads are sort of more professional and, and dress neatly and sort of yes. treat pop as a kind of bit. I mean, it's typically, again, very typically Warholian sort of perspective. <laughs> Let's talk just a little bit about talking heads. Chris France mm-hmm. has just published his yes. memoir of life in the talking heads, Remain in Love. And so we're featuring a couple of, Talking Heads pieces, one mm. quite early one by Richard Goldstein from, I think it must be the Village Voice, where he's just seen them at CBGB. So around the time oh, you and Michael would have been interviewing them. And mm. then Giovanni Dodomo of Sounds interviewing them, I guess, on their first visit to the UK in, in, in 77. I mean, I, I really loved the early Talking Heads. Mm. This is the first single. Love Goes to Building on Fire. Um, yeah. My memories of my se- memories the summer of 76 are very much entwined with like Blank Generation by Richard Hell and the Vo- Voidoids, as you mentioned. And then that first Talking Heads single. Mm. And yet they were kind of so, I mean, now you look back and just think they were so unpunk and yeah. such a curious little group. But, but my God, I, think, I mean, that, 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 those first, I guess, like four or five albums, I mean, really stand up so incredibly oh. well. Oh, fantastic. And, and there was something else about them, which was, I remember Michael telling me, even maybe before I saw them, he says, like, how amazing they were, because, like, Tina was, like, almost terrified, because she was just start, you know, hadn't been playing bass. Then. So, and they were all, there was this sort of intensity of, like, they were just new at this. And, and that's very punk, you know. They were just, like, pushing forward. But the other amazing thing for me was it was a female bass player, you know. Absolutely. And that was huge to see. And I remember Roberta Bailey, when I was coming in to CBGB's one night to see Talking Heads, and I said, it's just, and, and when I, she knew that I was part of this new, this punk magazine thing, she said, she said it's amazing. There's so many women in this scene. And, you know, because she was a photographer and I was best friends with 
Fred Pelsman, who was a photographer, who worked with, it was Danny Fields' assistant as well, and Kate Simon, a photographer. There was these great women. And I, I know that if I had entered a music scene even five, ten years earlier, there would have been no place for me. Whereas I felt like, oh, yeah, this is, it's, this is really open to women. And then Patti Smith, of course. I mean, the other thing was seeing, actually, the album cover of Horses in um, Record Store on, on, in the East Village. And, like, this is when I first got to New York, you know, first few weeks in New York. And, like, just looking at it, I've never seen, you know, you know when you see something completely yeah, new? Such a great. Well, Matt Maple, but no one had depicted a kind of, a sort of rock and roll female in that way before, or presented herself as a rock and roll female. Yeah. You know, it was startlingly new kind of piece of iconography, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was, there was a certain, because punk had a certain androgyny. Yeah. And the punk Absolutely. style was kind of, you know, I mean, there were certain people at CBGBs who different did different kinds of looks, like sexy 50s looks or whatever, but there was a classic punk style as androgynous, and that made it just easy. You know, it took the pressure off. Yes. Mm. What did you think of television as compared oh, with well, the other groups? I love, we love television, and my best friend, Fran Pelsman, was going out with Billy Fricker, the drummer. So, you know, we would we would go see television again, like with John Cale or Talking Heads. I would go see them or Patty, you know, we'd go see them every time they played, yeah. basically. And many and some of my most amazing experiences were at CBGB's at two in the morning when there would be 10 people there. Mm-hmm. And I will never, ever forget that. And it's funny because I'm not big on guitar solos or whatever, but there was something else happening there that it, it felt like really improvisational and beautiful and and you just you know you just i don't know it was you never knew what would happen i don't think it ever was quite captured on record really oh well that you know that's a perfect segue into this week's audio interview because <laughs> uh, uh mark tell us about tom Belaine. yeah I, I mean it's 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 a really it's an interesting very long interview martin aston in 87 he just released his new solo album flashlight Hmm. They talk extensively about his lyric writing, curiously enough. He also talks, and we can listen to a clip now, of he listened again to Marky Moon about three years ago for the first time for sort of 15 years or something like that. And he's, he's you know, it's, he's, he's, he's interesting about it. No, and, and actually I should listen to it again because I think we all, it, it's partly also the way you approach it because you, if you have a very, very intense experience that is part of many things. Yeah. It's part of being young. It's part of being in a place and you can't really ever capture it. But when we, before I, I, I was listening to the clips that you sent last night and then I went and was just looking at for some live stuff on YouTube and there's a, I say, oh, yeah, they did a 13th floor elevator song. And I went and listened to Fire Engine, remembering that they played it. It was so, and actually the, the recording, I guess, was so fantastic. Well, let, let's listen, let's listen to, to, to the little clip about Marky Moon, and we'll just, just briefly talk about that. never hear it. I mean, I mean, I don't listen to it. I think I played it once about three years ago to see what it sounded like, and it sounded like a, first of all, I thought, hmm, I mean, the thing that I think is likable about that, like any first record of a band that's been playing live for a few years, is that it is, it is definitely captured performance. Um, and I've still tried to do this with, with the records. I mean, in other words, this new record was done extremely quickly. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really loved Marky Moon when it came out. And then I went to see them live, and I absolutely hated them. Oh. Um, we saw them support... Do you, were you at that gig, Barney? Yeah, um, supported by Blondie. Yeah. Support, supported by Blondie. And Blondie basically blew them off the stage. Mm. Um, because there was something... There was no, nothing coming off the stage. They were a bit joyless in performance. But it didn't change my appreciation of Marky Moon, I have to say. I still think it is one of the... 10 greatest rock albums ever made, which ironically has something to do with Andy Johns, who engineered it, who was, of course, Led Zeppelin's engineer. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think Eno had tried to capture television. I mean, Richard, of course, we go back to Richard Williams here. Um, He was doing some kind of A&R scouting in New York in 74, and he went into the studio with television, a very early television, with Richard Hell, I think, Mm. still in the band. And they just didn't, didn't come up with the goods, and I think Ireland didn't. Well, obviously, Ireland didn't sign them, but then, like two years later, they were on Electra. Andy Johns um, went into the studio with them, and, and I think you know, engineered one of the greatest <laughs> sounding rock records it's, it's, ever. It's, it's, it's a fantastic record, I think. And it's interesting to hear about the soloing because I do think there's the, that kind of tension between those two guitar players. It's just not self-indulgent. It's incredibly which, intense. Which leads us perfectly onto the next clip. Okay, let's which, hear that. Uh, yes, which is about guitar soloing. Mm. <laughs> Why don't you do make jazz records or... Why? Well, I'm not really much of a player. I mean, this is this is. The, see, I've never been really interested in technique. I came to lead guitar by being bored with other soloists within bands. For instance, when television started, I figured good. I'd be the rhythm parts player. Richard would be the lead, but he would, the leads he would turn out. And Richard Hell, whoever he'd say, why don't you take some of these leads? You know, because Lloyd was very good, but it was much more in the kind of early 70s rock mold of a kind of blues rocky thing yeah. and um so i said yeah okay i'll take the solo we'll take every other solo you think was it was more just a uh, another kind of voice in there um but again it, the, in playing these solos it, it, they become kind of the, there is a demand and i think again because to be uh to try to surprise oneself to try to rather than to create something uh, archetypal or stereotypical, something that everybody knows works. There's much more desire to, like, first of all, serve the song in a way. I think that, that that's very interesting. I love the fact that it's Richard Hell kind of basically told him, you take some solos. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I think Richard Lloyd, you mean? Richard no, Lloyd. Richard Hell. Oh, Richard Hell. Does he was say guy, I was struggling that, to hear it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, Richard Hell suggests, Richard suggested, mm. Tom, that he takes some of the solos because I think he's just getting really bored with Richard Lloyd's very much more sort of pro forma rock guitar solos, you know. But, I mean, he's a really interesting guitar player. Yeah, and, and they, I, I think it was the dual, it was dueling guitar solos which made yeah, it exciting. Yeah, yeah. So it, was, it always had yeah. tension. It always had, had Definitely had tension. I mean, in some ways, it, it reminded me almost of pre-punk bands like The Dead, to some degree, and, and Quicksilver. Yep. 
you know, that there were these two different styles going on, you know, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. But it's funny hearing at the beginning of the audio, Mark, when <laughs> Martin says, he obviously comes in and finds Tom eating. Because I had exactly the same experience. I interviewed Verlaine probably in that very same week. And I came into this office at Phonogram and he was sitting there on the floor, cross-legged, eating a croissant. <laughs> and then pr- like, yeah. proceeded to eat throughout. And I didn't realize that this was something he did routinely. It was like, yeah, sit and eat like, during interviews. So the, <laughs> the, first, the first thing Martin Aston said to me, which is, is, you know, how come you're always eating breakfast when you're being interviewed? <laughs> yeah, that was funny. I guess he's just trying to make the best use of his time. <laughs> Because one of the things that uh, I was always obsessed with Tom Verlaine, he seemed so mysterious art figure. And I remember saying to my friend Fran, you know, what does Tom Verlaine eat for breakfast? Does he do normal things? <laughs> obviously, clearly, he ate croissant. Now you know the, the missing piece of the, of the yeah. CBGB's jigsaw. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, so, I mean, he talks about sort of the way he's making records now as a solo artist quite a lot. He talks about always trying to improve his guitar playing, but never practicing which is, I think, a kind of nice, nice way of looking at it. He also talks about some of the, you know, he says he hasn't spoken to Richard Lloyd for a long time. He speaks to Patti Smith once in a blue moon, but doesn't really hang out with those people, doesn't really hang out with musicians at all. And his, actually, his social group are much more painters, mm. like people like that. And also about, you know, he's baffled when people, other people ask him to play on their records and then kind of just ask him to be, to play like Tom Verlaine. And he's just, doesn't know what that means, you know, especially in the context of often pop tunes that people, oddly enough, ask him to play on. So it's, it's, it's good. It's quite long. It's an hour and 20 minutes odd, but definitely, definitely worth, worth, worth listening. Mary, just to sort of, in a sense, bring um, your story up to the present day. I mean, you know, many people listening will have seen The Extraordinary Amer- American Psycho and your other remarkable films. So I guess it behooves me to ask you what is... In, in lockdown, what is, what's happening with your career? Also, I wanted to just ask you about, because it does still say on your Wikipedia page, it talks about that you were, you were going to make a film based on Legs McNeil's yeah. and Gillian McLean's wonderful oral history, Please Kill Me, which, which if, if you haven't, if any, anyone out there hasn't read it, it is the great like American punk book i think yes totally um and and it would make a fabulous film but tell us why that run aground you just i mean you know it's difficult because in in a way the book was impossible to adapt because it's so many stories and it's about a scene, but it's, uh, it takes place over many years. And, and all the individual stories are fantastic. And we were, I wrote it with my friend, Fran, Francis Pelsman, the one who was Danny Peel's assistant, both a yes. photographer and his assistant at 16 Magazine. And so I, you know, I, I had used, decided to use her story as, you know, have a protagonist like an observer, sort of like an Alice in Wonderland figure who, who was both dealing, you know, Fran would both be dealing with ABBA, you know, and, fo- and she was writing like the Donny Osmond diary for 16. And then she would go to, you know, she, she, because Danny was managing the Ramones at the same time. So she was, yeah. you know, I thought that was a great story as a way to get it in. I think that Legs thought it was too sort of innocent and naive. And I think maybe that more reflected my experience, which wasn't particularly debauched, you know. And he thought that there wasn't enough sex or drugs or it wasn't. I don't know what he thought, but I think actually it's very hard for someone. It, it, this book was so important to him. I felt like he couldn't let it go. Sure. 
and he wanted mm-hmm. us to use his screenplay yes. and I just didn't feel that that his screenplay was right. And so we were on it for years and put a tremendous amount of time into it and effort. And, and, and it's, it's sad, very sad to me. Lex and I were friends very good for 35 years. And then it kind of, now we haven't spoken, which is sad to me. Jasper, do you want to ask about Huey Lewis? Huey Lewis oh. in the news? Well, I was going to say, do you think Andy Warhol likes Huey Lewis in the news? He may, he may, you know, he may well they really it. came into their own commercially and artistically, yeah. clear, crisp sound, new sheen of consummate professionalism. Yeah, he might well, he might have, could have really gone for that. That was very funny about American Psycho. When I, I signed on to, to write an adaptation, I was, uh, I had read the book before just to read it, and then I was going through it again. And one of the things that I really loved in the book, there are these three chapters of kind of sort of classic deadpan music criticism. And they're devoted this tremendously serious music criticism to three of the most kind of, it just, I, would, I don't know, what is the word? I would, it's more it's kind of bland in a way. It's, it's Huey yeah, Lewis, yeah. It's, it's Phil Collins, it's Whitney Houston. And he treats them like they're the most soul-shatteringly great art. And I, and I, and these chapters are just interspersed in the book in between scenes of sort of horrific violence. And so the one, I feel like my one really good idea in American Psycho was that if you turn these into monologues and he starts talking about music and then kills somebody. Yeah. Every time he starts talking about music again, you're going to think he's going to kill somebody. And so it will create tension. So, and we had tremendous trouble getting the rights. Because, of course, nobody wanted to give rights to American Psycho. The book was so notorious and hated. And then the studio kept saying to me, well, there must be some other music you can use. And we listened to the editor. We listened to so much music. And, you know, nothing fit. Because if it's too British, it was too clever. It didn't work. Do you know what I mean? You couldn't use Depeche Mode. It just didn't work. And we tried other things that were too arty. You couldn't use anything too dark. It had to be that music. Unfortunately, they end up paying a ton of money and, and getting those songs. But it's so brilliant. And it's so it's so chilling as well, because it's like it's it's the exact opposite of what's going on. But it somehow explains what's going on at the same time. It's like it, it's really it's a perfect yeah. psychopathic soundtrack, really. Yeah. <laughs> And so that was, that was really fun. And I also found that when we were editing American Psycho, the more upbeat the music, the better it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Like Katrina and the Waves, perfect. Yes. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to use Talking Heads. Once in a lifetime I wanted to use, and they wouldn't let, uh, the record company wouldn't let me. And I, it, back then, you know, it wasn't as easy to get hold of people. I couldn't get hold of David. I think if I'd gone, been able to just ask David directly, he would have said yes. Yeah. Mary, that's been, it's been just great talking to you. We could, I, I wish we could talk for another two hours and prevent you from doing anything else today because there's just, it's just so much I wanted to, wanted to ask you. But we are, we are sort of running out of time. And I, I think at this point we are going to have to sort of – we're going to have to talk about another guitar hero mm-hmm. who we lost only a few days ago, the, the great Peter Green, the Fleetwood Mac. Mm. legend before we sort of pay tribute were bands like the original kind of you know blues version of Fleetwood Mac did they mean anything to you Mary when you when you were living in when you were studying in England I mean I remember 
I remember seeing them saying, um, I would rather go blind. Didn't they do that? Yeah. Yes. And thinking Christine that was, Perfect. That yeah. was fantastic. He, Peter Green was in there then, right? Yeah. I think he may have just, I mean, he might he just have left at that point. Yeah. 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 So I wasn't that aware from them. I was more aware of them, you know, obviously in, in New York in the late 70s, they were, when they had their whole pop career, they were yeah. huge. Of course, I wasn't, very, very I wasn't that aware of them. Later, I, I appreciated them more. I remember hearing them more because I believe he joined Children of God at one point. No, well, that was Jeremy the, Spencer. Oh, that's Jeremy that's Spencer. Right. Okay. But no, funnily enough, so I, the wasn't, fo- I yeah. wasn't that. I wasn't that. I, you know, it's funny. I appreciate them now. And when I've listened to more classic blues and stuff. So I, I appreciate them now, but I can't say it was part of my... I mean, Peter, Peter Green didn't join the Children of God, but he did, he did go a bit crazy thanks to LSD, and he did give a lot of his money away and for a moment became a kind of Jesus person. What always sticks in my mind, long before I ever really listened to Peter Green, or probably even really listened to, like, Clapton playing with the Blues Breakers, I remember the late Roy Carr at NME, saying to me once, of course, the great white British blues guitar player was Peter Green. B.B. King told me once, you know, all those other guys can play, but Peter Green is the only one who makes me feel something. Oh. And that's become quite, something like that's become a very famous yeah. quote. Oh. And he, I mean, my God, he, took, you know, words like lyrical don't come close to expressing mm. What a beautiful player he was. It really um, was. I mean, to pick up from where Verlaine was saying, it was not about technique. It was about feel. Mark, well, I mean, you know, given that you were listening to records, I imagine, you know, Fleetwood Mac, Blues Breakers records in the 60s. What, what was your take on, on Peter Green at, at well, that point? Well, I, I, I mean, I loved him. I mean, the, yeah. the only John Mayle record my brother bought home was Hard Road, Hard which Road, was the yeah. one with, with Peter Green on then Arbaltrust was a huge hit in England. And I absolutely, I love them. It's, it's odd, if you listen to them now, they were a pretty crude band. Yes. They were pretty ropey, actually. There's a really good live album recorded at Shrine. It's called Shrine 69, where his playing is just astonishing. But, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the rhythm section were clunky and... Pretty you know, bloody, weren't they? Pretty yeah. bloody. And they were very rough around the edges. But, no, he was just a fabulous player. And... and they then they, they, on tour of Europe, they went to Germany and invited this party by this kind of very kind of almost aristocratic beatnik couple who later crop up in all kinds of places. Keith Richards knew them and he mentions them in their book. Yeah. They also were associated with people in the Bader Meinhof gang and so oh, on. Yeah. And this party, they were all given vast amounts of acid. And that was the point where Peter Green sort of started going over the cliff. He didn't really come back from that. I mean, the, the good thing is, in his later years, probably due to better medication, better medical help, because essentially he was schizophrenic, mm-hmm. is that he was able to start playing again. Not, not, nothing like the way he used to play before, but occasionally, some people report saying, seeing him playing live, and actually he would suddenly come up maybe if the meds were guitar. just right you know i mean i remember you and i saw him at that bishop stock blues yeah, festival and it's terrible. the peter green splinter group and it was yeah. just it was it was woeful it mm. was heartbreaking you know when you knew what he'd been capable of you mentioned that shrine album there's the live version of something inside of me on that i remember reading Greel marcus writing something about that live album and i didn't really expect Greel to be someone who who'd respond to that kind of lyrical blues playing. Sure. But he wrote very movingly about it. And 
the playing on that is just because I listen to the studio version. It's just not a patch on it. It's it's quite a routine, and you listen to the the tone of this Les Paul, and he just makes the guitar just sing. I mean, it's it is absolutely chillingly beautiful. I think. Absolutely. I mean, I, I really recommend anyone. There's the full long album version of their cover of Little Willie John's Need Your Love So Bad, which is just, just fabulous. Yeah. You know, I'd say in terms of recording, that's him at his absolute lyrical best. Yes. We could go on about it forever, but it's it, yeah. sadly. Also, I mean, we, um, Denise Johnson, who's a great backing singer for yeah. people like Primal Scream and others, died this week, oh, very yeah. young, which is which is extreme, extremely sad. That is very, very sad. I mean, she's such an important part of of that scene, the really, Scream yeah. Adelica thing. Yeah, yeah, completely. Uh, and of course, Alberto Ilos Trios. Yes. You t- 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 you t- 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 well, I mean, I really didn't pay much attention. Did you, I mean, Mary, did you, were you aware at all of Alberto y los Trios Paranoias? Probably not. I, I, it's very they familiar to him. They were sort of Mancunian, yeah. almost, so, well, they were, they were like a kind of Mancunian version of the Fugs or something. It was this kind of satirical kind of comedy, wasn't it, Mark? They would, they would yeah, just yeah. take the piss out of other uh, bands. I, who, sorry, remind us of who, which member. C.P. Lee is or, C.P. Or Lee, Chris Lee, uh, as he's referred yeah. to in this Miles piece. Yeah, I saw them supporting. I can't remember who they were supporting. I saw them supporting someone at the Hammersmith Odeon, something, and they were very funny. They really like, were. They, were this, they? they had this one song called "The Winfield Wall of Sound," which is based around the fact that Woolworth's own brand stuff was called Winfield, and <laughs> so this, they brought out this little practice amp, the Winfield practice amp, and it's the Winfield Wall of Sound, which made me laugh, you know. <laughs> but no, uh, a lot of people who I know knew him and remembered him very, very fondly. It's a really interesting, interesting Well, this man. Miles piece from January 77, he goes to uh, Amsterdam and Eindhoven, hangs out with them. And at this point, they're already doing, they're doing sort of punk pastiches. There's a Patsy Smith pastiche called Radio Iguana. <laughs> and, then, and then there's a, a, a song called something, a sort of Ramones-style ditty, it says here, called Teenager in Stuck. But they took the piss out of everybody. They did a Captain Beefheart parody called Gingham Toad Wart Troutesque <laughs> Boogie. So, I mean, I, I didn't really experience them, but, uh, but reading this Miles piece that we've we got on the homepage intrigues me. It makes me, they, makes they me want to hear done, more. They could have done a sort of sturgeon mask replica from... Iggy and the Sturgeon. <laughs> I mean, that was so funny, Mary. I mean, it made me think. Well, if they if they had been called Iggy and the Sturgeons, would the would the sort of history of punk oh, and yeah. post punk have been completely it different? It would never have happened. It would never, <laughs> it never have, have, have lived on. <laughs> We'd Surely. still be listening to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Yeah. So that's Peter Green. So it's farewell to, to Peter Green. Unfortunately, we haven't got any pieces really about Denise Johnson, but we have got two pieces about Peter Green including a long interview that Gay Dad's Cliff Jones did in 1996 with Peter Green, where he talks about, he says, 
He said everything went wrong with one last tab of acid that some girl gave him. And he says, if I could find that girl who gave me that tab of acid, I'd punch her in the face because she destroyed my life, which well, is they, kind of a harrowing thing to read. I mean, uh, I, I believe that girl has passed. Um, OK, <laughs> yes. But she, she, she is the, the aristocrat I was referring oh, to. OK, right? I see. Uh, yeah. Right. Interesting. So, 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 um, so that's what's on the home page, and we're now, Mary. Please stick around and jump in if the mood takes you. Mark is going to talk us through his highlights among the week's new pieces. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll keep I'll keep this as quick as possible because we're we're running a little late. First, Richard Green, Record Mirror, nineteen sixty six, interviewing Brian Jones, and it's really interesting because Brian Jones is clearly sort of already in the process of kind of slightly coming unglued, which obviously led in to ultimately in 69 to him leaving the band. And he says, I can identify myself with the group, but I'm not sure about the image. This rebel thing is gone now. Life is a paradox for me. I'm so contradictory. I have this need for expression, but I'm not certain what it is I want to do, which is, you know. Yeah. He was um, already pretty, a sort of odd man out, really. Yeah, then, I, I think so. You know, not writing and so on, so things mm. have pushed into the margins. Eased of the out, band. really, by yeah. Mick and Keith. Splendid Lillian Roxon piece on LaBelle, which has got a mis- misleading head. This is the New York Sunday News in July 72. It's got a misleading headline Nona Hendricks of Liberated LaBelle. Nona Hendricks barely appears in this article. It's basically a profile with. And Patty is the one who kind of gets to talk. Oh, okay. uh, I asked Patty if her own musical tastes had changed with the group's own ages. Yes, she said, I used to listen to Shirley Bassey, Barbara Streisand, Aretha and Gladys Knight. Now I just listen to, like, Aretha and Gladys. <laughs> <laughs> Did Lillian Roxon mean anything to you, Mary, when you moved to New York? Yes. She was already, obviously, deceased by then, but, but no, I but imagine she, a lot of people... Yeah. I knew people knew her, and she yeah. was a legend. She was, she was a, big, a big figure, actually, even though she yeah. had... Had passed, yeah. Completely. Yeah. So, so we recruited her via her niece, who was an Australian politician, a very successful Australian politician. <laughs> Philip Elwood, I mean, I'm not going to read anything from this, but it's just interesting. Is that this San Francisco Examiner in 1978, he wrote a kind of a really rather good defense of disco, just at the time when people were claiming that disco sucked. And he said, you know, as, well, a little bit, as is, also as usual, the critics of the disco craze, as often as not, are critical of the volume of the music, not the music itself. And they're critical of the environment, audio, visual, social, which they associate with disco sounds. Although every contact I've had in recent weeks with those who object to the disco movement revealed none had ever been to a disco club or a disco dance hall. What a surprise. I've uh, just mentioned uh, Paul Morley's review of the Bush Tetris at Rainbow Theatre in 1981 for the NME. Barney, you and I were both at that show, weren't we? That oh, yeah. Was that, um, Me too. Uh, yeah. yeah? Um, <laughs> there you it was go. so cold. In fact, Paul Morley refers to how cold it was in the Rainbow that day. And the sound was pretty dreadful, but it was an interesting show. Another great New York band, and that yeah, was a yes, whole great. New York night, wasn't it? it? Was a whole New York. That's right. Lineup. It was yeah. uh, the the, the Ray Beats. Beats. Yeah. Was Adele Bertai in the band at that point? In the Bush uh, I, don't know. I think Adele. Don't think so. Was she in the? Um, did she? Was she ever in the Bush Bush Tetris? I thought she, she might have. She was in James that. Chance. And the contortions. And then she formed the Bloods, didn't she? Oh, so maybe she wasn't in the Bush Tetris, but she was part she of that. She might briefly have been. She might briefly have been. Yeah, I know. Or maybe she just, you know, they, they were all associated. She just wrote a great memoir that's going to come out that she sent me, which yeah. is she's really She's a good. lovely person. I, yeah, she's I met wonderful. Her in, in LA a couple of times a few years ago, and I really liked her. Yeah. I, I mean, Bush Tetris actually 
I didn't really get get at the time, and I really get them now. I yeah. think I think Too Many Creeps is one of the great records. Yeah, I think they're fantastic. <laughs> I yeah. Nineteen eighty two, Michael Goldberg and Cream interviewing the Knacks Doug Figo. Now the knack already on the way down by this point. But he's such a ponce, this bloke. He, <laughs> you know, I ain't chauvinist, but the but girls are a different breed. I hate to tell you this, but you ain't gonna get what you need. Oh, oh, oh dog. Oh, so oh, please. And uh, well last one I'll talk about is Jeff Beck being interviewed by David Sinclair in the Times in nineteen eighty six. It's just, I've never been back and capitalised on what I've laid out. It's irresponsible, not at all professional, but I'm still here. And as long as I can keep playing better than last week, I'll keep going. And he talks about you know, when Led Zeppelin made it so big, I was jealous, absolutely jealous as hell. But I'm glad I carried on as I was. Uh, and that is him describing this sort of determined sort of streak of his of orneriness. Yeah. That he, you know, not selling out to kind of... To, to the, Huge amounts of money. That's my lot. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Pringle. Jasper, you got anything? I'll just mention a, a couple of things. One thing that ties in is a piece about it's a book review of a book called Superstar DJs Here We Go, <laughs> which kind of ties into the, the sort of what happened after what we talked about with Cheryl Garrett a few weeks ago when she was on the podcast, when the superstar DJ kind of started demanding too much money and was actually pretty rubbish, so nobody liked them anymore. But there's quite a funny little bit that ties in something you talked about earlier. Mimicking the super club's tendency to celebrate their own success, New Labour, ever ready to hitch a ride with a happening youth movement, chose a top club anthem, Things Can Only Get Better, as its election night victory theme in 1997. By a nice irony, one of the most successful superstar DJs, Paul Oakenfold, currently owns a house in London's Connaught Square, next door to Tony Blair. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Tony Blair podcast. Isn't it? <laughs> we'll have to um, get him on. We'll have to like get that, him on. I, I was just amused to read that. Having um, yeah, yeah. You know. and one of the other things is our first article on Rizzle Kick, sort of chirpy hip hop duo from Brighton. Caroline Sullivan reviews their second album, and there's a the last line of it is great one liners tumble out. I was more confused than all John Terry's black friends. Tune Swagger, and like the debut, the whole thing is irresistible. I just thought I'd mention that because... So who was the writer again, Just That's Caroline Sullivan, and the, the li- that's one of the lines from one of their from one of Rizzle Kicks' songs. Right. <laughs> well, of course, and this is the, the, the week when Wiley, the oh, God, yeah. full Wiley, has yeah. spouted anti-Semitism all over his Twitter feed. I, and I hear another grime artist who knows him said that he actually genuinely believes all that stuff. Oh, you know, that's very apparent. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, Stormzy came down on him like a ton of bricks, which is yeah. which is good. But I mean, it's just so depressing. It's so also, depressing. I think he's probably he's probably holed his career under the waterline. You know, I, I think it's yeah. his everyone's dumping him. His management yeah. company are dumping him. I think his record label are dumping him. It's just it's, it's just going down the tubes. Yeah. Uh, I, there is that photograph of him and Dizzy Rascal sitting outside the block of flats in Bow that I lived in for fifteen years. So it's, <laughs> because they kind of came from that estate. Is that where his anti-Semitism started? Probably. It's probably yeah. me. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is yeah. You still want to look at me. He yeah. <laughs> just thought, the Rothschild. <laughs> um. <laughs> the last thing I want to mention to end on a light note is I added a piece from an interview with Rick Astley 
Uh-huh. on how we made like, this dwarf's never, never going to give you up. <laughs> and it's great. I mean, Rick Astley is one of those. I mean, he's become people of my generation know him because never going to give you up is a huge meme. It's one of the original yeah. memes of like yeah, yeah. getting Rick rolled. Yeah. All of the listeners are about to get Rick rolled. There's something he's so humble and so he's quite sweet. Un, yeah, yeah, he's yeah, really yeah. sweet, unbothered by the whole thing. Yeah, no, very, I mean, it's, it's very nice I mean, to read this interview. He, he was basically the tea boy at, at PWL exactly Studios, what he says. right? One uh, day uh, I was making tea for Banana Rama. The next yes. I was at number one. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> the pop dream. When when my band was signed to RCA, we went for sort of the, the end of the year conference where there's a lot of backslapping goes on, and he had just had a whole series of massive hits. Um, mm. He went up to receive an award with Pete Waterman. Pete Waterman basically pushed him to one side and made the speech on his behalf. Oh. It was the most humiliating thing I've ever seen in my life, you know. And I just felt so sorry for him. Never having liked what he did, but just seeing that disgraceful display, you know, of arrogance. And- well, here's an idea, Mary. American Psycho 2 <laughs> with an all-stock Aitken Waterman soundtrack. Yeah, it could work. It could work. Hey, you know, that's, that's our gift to you. Thank you. Just, um, are you are you okay in New York? Is everything all right? Just yes, all the yes, madness yes. going on in your um, in your country. I'm, I mean, I'm supposed to be going to Europe. I was supposed to be uh, trying to make something in Portugal, and I don't even know if I'll be allowed to leave the country, but or if I or if I should leave the country, get on a plane right now. But but you know, in my little apartment and everything, we're writing. I was very lucky. You know, I can just work on scripts, work on projects that may or may not happen. But it's kind of nice to have an extended period just to write. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, thank you so much oh, for yeah. joining us. So it's, it's been an absolute delight. Oh, it was super fun. Thank you. you. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's a fascinating time and place. And you were right there in the eye of the hurricane. And thanks for sharing your memories and insights on that time and um mark we are going to go out are we not with this brings things very to a very neat conclusion really yes tom verlaine talking about his fondness for andy warhol ah perfect great great so we'll Well. be back in a couple of weeks hopefully with alan mcgee in the hot seat i won't be here because i'll be in italy risking getting locked into a mediterranean country for the next three months (laughs) If you get stuck there, you're just going to have to proofread articles about PFM. (laughs) 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 Hunt down old Italian music magazines. Mary, thanks again so much. We are going to say goodbye to everybody now. um, um, But come and see us again sometime. Good luck with all your future and present projects. Thank you. This is really fun. I love this. I didn't know any Warhol. I met him a couple times. And the thing about him was, I mean, most an awful lot of painters are incredibly pompous, self-important people. And Warhol was not this at all. I mean, he, if you, he was incredibly, what's that word, a friendly person. You know, if you, if you were in a bar or restaurant and you were playing a show that night and you'd been there, you'd walk over and go, I saw the film, make some little very friendly but possibly witty comment about things. He's a very engaging fellow, yeah. very conversational, and very interested in everything. 
whereas other parents you meet, they're over there and they're being sort of ferocious and, and important and, and one might say superior. That was Tom Verlaine in conversation with Martin Aston in 1987, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Mary Harron, the hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.